is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing Jaws. Off the shore of Amity Island, just before sunrise, a lovely young woman named Chrissy Watkins splits from a beachside party to go skinny dipping in the ocean. She effortlessly glides through the calm water when suddenly something hits her from below. Tugged momentarily beneath the surface, she pops back up, hyperventilating in fear before she is grabbed again and thrashed about, her screams unheard by those back on the beach. With gurgled cries to God for help, she is pulled under one last time and vanishes, leaving the water as still and as silent as it had been before. So begins Jaws, one of the greatest movies ever made. Released in 1975, and directed by an up-and-coming Steven Spielberg, the story adapts Peter Benchley's best-selling novel of the same name. It pits a voracious great white shark against a displaced police chief, a bougie scientist, and a salty fisherman as they battle for the fate of the sleepy beach community of Amity Island. Jaws was a phenomenal success. It was the first movie to gross more than $100 million at the box office, ending a five-year recession in Hollywood and launching the notion of the summer blockbuster. In fact, it was the most financially successful movie of all time until it was overtaken just two years later by a movie set a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Its successful saturation marketing strategy, which included widespread national release and heavy television advertisement, forever changed how movies are sold. It created a template for horror filmmaking that has been used countless times ever since, and it inspired a host of cringy ripoffs featuring aquatic man-eating animals, which some might say includes its own franchise of regrettable sequels. In the United States, Jaws kicked off such an intense wave of national panic over shark attacks that it depressed seashore tourism for a whole summer. It also caused a spike in both shark sightings and recreational shark fishing for years to come. At the heart of it all, is a movie that works just as well today as it did when it was first released so many summers ago. Its ominous title score by John Williams has become a universal audio cue for impending doom. And its most quotable lines and most memorable scenes are so deeply imprinted in our cultural muscle memory. Jaws didn't just become one of the most widely recognizable touchstones of 1970s pop culture. It became an immortal tale of man versus self, man versus man, and of course, man versus nature. This is easily in my top five movies of all time. I will never get tired of watching it, and I am thrilled to talk about it now. So let's go fishing. With me today, from the Oceanographic Institute, Chris Crenshaw. Howdy, folks. Amity Gazette Editor-in-Chief, Tom Hespos. Can I quote you on the bite radius thing? <laughs> and Amity Island Selectman, Joe Pace. Get out of the way for the pictures. Come on, we got these pictures to take. <laughs> Everybody welcome. Joe, we're going to start with you tonight because your moment of truth does a lot to kind of set up a really unique aspect of this movie. I think it's kind of, the well, there, there are two Jaws, right? There's two stories in this movie. There's the first half and the second half. And your moment of truth speaks a lot to that interesting nature. And I think also when, when the movies switch over. So take it away. As we discussed during our Ghostbusters episode, uh, I have a long history with municipal government, have a passion for that kind of local elected service. It matters to me that people are represented well by those who do most of the real governing in this country, school boards, planning boards, town councils, boards of selectmen, and mayors. Now, in Ghostbusters, the casual corruption and electoral calculus is played for laughs, but in Jaws, it's not funny at all. Mayor Larry Vaughn is not a comedic character. He's a tragic character for himself and for everybody else. We know right away that this guy has his own priorities and that they're very narrowly focused on two things, the town of Amity 
and Mayor Larry Vaughn. And to him, they're one and the same. He is Amity. If Amity thrives, he thrives. The town's economic life and his political life are completely intertwined. Uh, it's made clear that Mayor Vaughn will dismiss anything that threatens that. Now, in my dozen years serving on local select boards, I've been alongside a few like that, men and women who they wrap themselves in this willful blindness so they don't see anything they don't want to. And, you know, you repeat that lie to yourself enough times, it becomes truth. So here we get Mayor Larry Vaughn, right? And his ludicrously awesome anchor pattern jacket, which I kind of want. I've Ready searched to- for that. <laughs> I've searched for that for years. I, I so badly want a Larry Vaughn suit. I cannot even tell you how badly I want one and I just can't find it. That, that would be awesome. Might have to have it custom made. Um, <laughs> but look, I mean, he's ready to, to defend Amity from a, what he considers a false panic on the eve of the town's biggest tourism weekend. He's so intent on that that he won't consider any evidence that threatens to erode that worldview. That select board meeting that's so familiar to me that I, I, I hope we talk about it. The refusal to autopsy the poor tiger shark, the chivying of poor old beachgoers into the ocean to perpetuate his narrative. This guy is bulletproof. He's infallible until he isn't. So my moment of truth comes after the high profile shark attack with, on the crowded beach when Chief Brody and his family are in the hospital. It's, it's Vaughn's last scene in the movie and he's clearly shaken by what has happened. He's shaken because what's happened is terrible, but because it's his fault. He could have and should have prevented it if he hadn't been so obsessed with his own take on things. But even then, even as he came face to face with the tragedy and his complicity in it, he defaults to the small time politician. He's reflexively deflecting blame. He's seeking justifications that will preserve his political and his psychological health. Look, Larry Vaughn, he's a terrible mayor. He's a terrible public servant. He's a terrible human being. And yet, like the other monster in this movie, it's not really his fault. Some animals are monstrous just because that's what nature made them. <laughs> and I love this, this, this scene to me. It's a great scene because you see the change in Vaughn. He goes from being swaggering and overbearing to being broken. It's also the pivot point when this stops being a horror movie and starts being a monster movie because we're not what's going on. You know, there isn't that like lack of, of evidence or we're not sure what's happening moving into we know what it is and now we're fighting this monster it goes from land to sea and, and so to me there's two there's two tails and jaws and that's the point at which it shifts we don't see Larry Vaughn again in this movie uh, and we don't need to because it's, he's not part of the story anymore but yeah uh, he's a huge part of the story to me in the part that uh, I, I, I enjoys the wrong word that uh, resonates with me quite a bit like you say, he's a horrible human being and he's a character you love to hate, but he's so well done. I mean, he's, he's this great character. And again and again, Brody is trying to do the right thing. And, and he's just like, he's just, you yell Barracuda. People say, huh? What? You're a shark. We got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. You're like, dude, like he's saying this like on a barge. Like, dude, like really? Like, come on. You know, he just like nothing stops this dude. When they're at the billboard, when they're on the beach. And he's yes. upset. He's upset about the graffiti on the billboard. Hang them up by their Buster Browns. <laughs> he is fixated on the wrong things. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's why I say I've served with guys like that. They can't get their mind around a big picture, so they focus on a small picture thing they think they can fix. Yeah. And I served with people that they couldn't understand a $5 million sewer bond, but if you tried to do a $5,000 project to move uh, an electrical box in the town hall, they'd want to talk about it for 10 days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, that, that to me is a lot like, uh, like this guy. By the time we get to the scene you're talking about, okay, one of the things I love uh, particularly about this episode to everybody out in the audience is that 
prior to recording, this is like Joe had not seen Jaws, right? So when we decided That's to right. do Jaws, right. Joe was like, I haven't seen it. I'm like, what? <laughs> You're, what? What? And so um, well, we made him go first. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, you, you, oh, you go first, Minnow. So we, we assigned Jaws to him, and I was super excited to hear what he had to say about this because he's coming at us as a first-timer. I've seen Jaws hundreds of times, but also because you've run into Larry Vaughn's of the world. So I was like, I can't wait to see what Joe has to say about this. But just in case there's other people out in the world who haven't seen Jaws but are listening to this, the real quick recap is that Amity Island is this, like, airsats. It's like Tucket. It's Martha's Vineyard. It's someplace off Long Island. It's one of those Montauk, Montauk <laughs> like one of those one of those northeastern island shore communities. And a great white shark has started patrolling the island and it's picking people off. And the local police is Chief Brody, played by Roy Scheider, and he's a New York City transplant. He's he's left a crumbling New York City to come out to the quietest spot he can find. That turns out it's got more mayhem than and then he ever found back in New York. He's a total landlubber on a small island. He's afraid of the water, but lives inside of the beach. So he's, just, he's out of his element. The whole power structure on the island has this vested interest in pretending this problem doesn't exist in classic monster movie fashion so they can get on with their business. Yeah, just go to the meeting, you know, where Quentin, you know, drags his nails on the, the start of that meeting. They're all just talking about, like, basic business stuff. Like, yeah. like <laughs> As if nothing's really happened. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and, you know, we're, record, we're recording this episode in week, God, 30 of the coronavirus pandemic in the United States, right? Where we're seeing people just like things that could be done aren't being done. And like, you know, they, they close the beaches. Brody announces that they're going to close the beaches and the, the business owners lose their minds over it. And Vaughn steps up and goes, oh, in 24 hours? Like, to instantly wants to play Kathan. He doesn't want to get in anybody's face. And Brody's like, what? I didn't agree to that. And you hear this voice in the background, somebody go, 24 hours is like three weeks. And like, meanwhile, people are dying in the surf. And like, they can't be bothered to shut the stuff down. So like, the corruption goes all the way to the core. Corruption probably is the wrong word. It's, it's misplaced priorities. And it's a misplaced sense of what you value. And you, and I, I, I was watching it, and as you say, it's, it's, it's a very timely allegory in a lot of ways for what we're experiencing right now when we see how different governments handle the quarantine, different governments, different state governments, different city governments address this issue of, you know, when public health comes directly at loggerheads with the, the, the economic life of the community, yeah. you know, who wins? And how do you, how do you balance those, those competing interests? And I don't know that necessarily there's a quote unquote right answer or not. And I'm, we're not here to discuss that, but it's fascinating to watch Larry Vaughn and his board of selectmen guess and guess wrong. Yeah. And guess wrong hard. Larry, Larry Vaughn would tell you that his duty is to the town, to the town as a whole. And that if he lets the beaches be closed on the busiest weekend that they depend on for their livelihood, so people are going to go hungry. Businesses are going to close. He will make that argument. Yeah. That, you know, is what's the potential. Maybe somebody will die versus we know what will happen if we don't have yeah. a gangbusters 4th of July weekend. <laughs> this is how we end up, you know, sacrificing virgins to the dragon every six months. Yeah. Well, and, and, and again, <laughs> I've sat on boards having these arguments with people that say, if we shut this down and you know, half of our businesses close yeah. and kids are going hungry in the street. You know, what have we achieved? You're trying to balance the interests of each versus the interests of all. 
and yeah. how do you you know that that balance is that's governing and it's yeah. and it's easy in a movie like this where there's a shark eating people and we can watch it to know what the right thing is mm-hmm. but in actual application it's not always that clear i don't really believe that he really believes he's doing the best good interest i think to your point you know it's a it's an argument that makes sense in his head it makes him feel better it makes the bad voices go away but come on i mean you know, during that 4th of July scene when he badgers people to go into the water, right? He's like, you know, people oh. like, he is, he's like, you got to go in the water. Oh. He goes against these two old people right? and gets them to go in. And the people, they drag their grandkids in and they're clearly yeah. fearful. They get in the surf. They're like, ha, 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 what's going to happen? And Larry's not in the water. Larry's yeah. in his suit on the beach. <laughs> he's, he's not swimming. He's getting other people to do it for him. It's one like, of oh, the, dude. One of the things that I tried to touch on in my, in my comment was once you have gone down a road you're on that road and once you've made that choice you've got to sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice to make it appear that that's the correct choice yeah you've got to whatever lies you have to tell whatever evils you have to perpetrate that serve the narrative that you were right is and that's what he does when he's on the beach and he tells that poor old guy like you got to go in the water it's like you're less important than me, brother. <laughs> you know, exactly. you know Not to mention my grandkids. Yeah. Or, he doesn't care about his kids. Grandkids. Yeah. Yeah. No, of course not. But he says during you know your moment of truth, Joe, you know, I my, have kids. my kids were on that beach. It, it, I don't know. I sneered at him, honestly, because yeah. he didn't he didn't send them in the water. Yeah. <laughs> he pushed them in first. Exactly. And his exactly. last line, his last line after he says, you know, I have kids too. And then he says, He's muttering, right? He goes, August. Because there had been a conversation about, like, if we lose 4th of July weekend, we'll have to make it up in August. And so yeah. He's like, August? We're like, August. What is August? That's not, the, that's not a thing. <laughs> and so now it's like, you don't know. You don't know if he's trying to convince himself if that would have been a good idea or if he's convincing yeah. himself that that was a bad idea. You don't know. Yeah. And the, the actor does a wonderful job. Oh, he's so um, good. Of portraying that. In that in yeah. That yeah, he's so good. Uh, Tom, were you going to say something? I've, I've seen this movie hundreds of times too. And like, <laughs> I never took anything away from it other than he's just this caricature of a local politician. The only thing admirable about him was that jacket. And, uh, <laughs> and I still want to get, you know, a jacket like that. I think I may have a guy for you, Joe. Uh, only though, if you also get a pair of swim trunks made, will I give you his name? Uh, but <laughs> Larry Vaughn swim trunks. Holy moly. God bless America. Yes, I am absolutely in. Uh, who we'll do I send the check order to? Together, it'll be cheaper. You know. Oh yeah, my just, gosh. We're a group on this stuff. Oh yeah, seriously. Yeah, we absolutely moly. we need a uniform for the podcast, and it is the embroidered jacket of the anchors. Lest we forget, the mayor in Jaws is still the mayor in Jaws too, right? So like his his disastrous decision making leads directly to the deaths of five people okay five people die in this movie because larry vaughn well i would I should say four people definitely die because larry vaughn can't take action chrissy watkins was was a surprise to everybody but everybody else dies after they should have shut things down and didn't even still larry still gets reelected. <laughs> yes he still is mayor in uh and does too nobody else wants that job trust me i i getting people sometimes to do these jobs they are they are thankless jobs um they are long hours. There's a lot of responsibility. They're not, they're not that much fun, honestly. And he gets his rocks off being a tin, you know, tin pot dictator of his little town. Yeah. And, and he Amity, as you he know, gets, means friendship. Means friendship. Oh, my God. That broke me, Chris. I was like, you are kidding me with that. 
<laughs> That's uh, a great line. <laughs> no, Amity, you know, means friendship. Oh, yeah, it does. Okay. You know, he said that in front of the mirror like a thousand times. Like, it was oh, just, yeah. it, it was just so, it was so practiced and so smooth. And that like, was his oh, campaign his slogan. Car yeah. salesman line. God. <laughs> That's the opening of every rotary meeting on the island. It's, it's the whole bit. It was so good. Oh, God. So the first act of the movie is really just about we're setting the stage for this monster is circling the island and it's picking people off and our heroes don't quite know what they're up against, right? And it isn't until we see Alex get eaten off the surf that, you know, a bunch of people see what happens. So Alex's mom puts this big, a $3,000 bounty to kill the shark, which in today's dollars, I think translates to like 15,000. So basically every Yahoo <laughs> with an outboard motor shows up to Amity Island to go do after the shark. And it's this great scene. And it's, it's kind of weird because this movie shifts from scenes of real dread and shock to these like very almost lighthearted goofball kind of scenes. But the fishing parting scene is really hilarious because like this big flotilla of these like half-assed boats all go out and they're all like bumped into each other. And like one guy's throwing quarter sticks of dynamite off the side. And, you know, people are like screaming at each other and they're getting their lines tangled. And, and you know, you know, Hooper's like, none of those guys are going to get out of the harbor alive. Like just a big big floating mess right none of these guys are going to catch the shark it just gets crazy but they do I laugh out. out loud whenever i see that guy dropping the dynamite in yeah the <laughs> he's, he's, he's just doing it like two feet from everybody else yeah. like nothing good is gonna happen <laughs> he lights it and just flicks it back over his left shoulder not even looking like, it could have landed in a boat <laughs> and not even an out not even a, a hint or notion of accountability uh, <laughs> oh no no like he's already gone like it is 1975 Right. He, only, he only looks back when he hears the report in the water. Like he's already on his way to light the next one. <laughs> like he's just gonna like carpet bomb the whole the whole channel. None but, of those guys were drunk at yeah, all. No, no, not at all. They do end up catching a shark, right? I think it's a big shark. You know, it's a, it's a tiger shark, and they make this big deal. They string it up, and the whole island. All they it's like round up the usual suspects, right? That all they wanted is bag a big shark. We can now say the problem is over, and all these yahoos don't know what they've got, so. They're convinced, obviously, we caught a shark. It must be the shark. Hooper is like, look, the bite radius on this animal doesn't match the bite radius on the victim. And, you know, we, we can't really be sure just yet. And so he's already cast this kind of this cloud of doubt over, look, our problem is more complicated than what we think it is. And Mayor Vaughn is like, look, we're not going to cut this fish open here and watch that little Kittner voice spill out all over the dock, which is like the only sensible thing he says the whole, whole movie, by the way. Everything stops for a second. True fact. <laughs> Yeah, true, right. And yet, it's for the wrong reasons. Like, yeah, it's for the wrong reasons. Yeah, wrong. It's like it's it looks bad. <laughs> it's gonna look but, bad. We have a kid on the dock. <laughs> it's like, because oh, obviously, we have to do the autopsy right here on the dock. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Even in all his zeal, Hooper is not suggesting let's just cut the fish right now and see what comes out. As this is all happening, all of a sudden, there's like a needle across the record moment when suddenly Alex Kittner's mom emerges right and she's dressed in black she's in total morning attire and everybody sort of stops and, and she and, and, and she actually kind of walks up she's like cheap brody and he's like yes and whack she just hits him across the face and that's when the whole doc stops all the laughing all the joking it all just stops everybody looks and it's dead quiet and she's like you know i just learned that a girl died here earlier this week you knew there's a dangerous animal and you let people go swimming anyway like, my boy is dead now. You know, my boy is dead, and I just want you to know that. She just leaves that on him and then and leaves. She, she doesn't threaten action. She doesn't do anything. She does the hardest thing that could happen to Brody. She just she lets him know what the price of failure really is. Vaughn immediately pipes in. He goes, Martin, I'm sorry. 
she's wrong. <laughs> he just discounts her, right? I think he doesn't, he doesn't even have to think about it. He goes, she's wrong. He's like, no, she's not. And, and, and you realize, you know, this is the, and it's, it's a great scene because it sets up what kind of guy Brody is. Brody may not be such a great cop, but he at least he understands he has a, a duty to protect and serve people. And he realizes he failed in that duty. And as a result, Alex Kintner is, is gone. He doesn't blame that mom at all for hating him for it. You know, he, he takes that upon himself. And that, there's, there's a quiet heroism that like he recognizes the gravity of what he does. And I just love that scene. And it's not often called out. It's like a favorite scene in the movie. But I love that scene because that's, that's when Brody starts to really, no platitude from Vaughn is going to make it okay for Brody at that point. From that point on, something has to be done. What I found so interesting there is that it's technically, yeah, it's Brody's fault, but it's really still the council and the mayor's fault, right? Because they, they said, hey, chief, don't, don't shut the beach down, let it go. The chief's job is to push back on that and say, no, guys, you're wrong, and publicly say, here's what you need to do. And yeah. Martin doesn't feel he has his sea legs. He's only been in town a little while. He's kind of feeling his way. And he lets Vaughn run kind of roughshod over him. Mm-hmm. And I think when she slaps him, he realizes – that I owed that little kid more of a fight against the mayor and the council to do what I knew was right. And I, I I got small on it. And that's my my fault. And, you know, I took that, you know, I took um, Vaughn trying to make him feel better about as yet another ding on Vaughn. Like he clearly did not understand the gravity of what had just happened. Sort of just blunders his way into the scene. I love, there's another thing that makes this really, really a great scene for me. Like, I don't know who the actress is who plays Alex's mom, but she plays off that sort of like half in a daze, yet still just so angry. Yeah. He really pulls that off. Like, I, I you know, I wish I knew who the actress was because it was yeah. fantastic. She did such a great job. Carried that off and made it so believable for me. I loved it. Yeah, yeah I, I wholeheartedly agree. I, I've always been struck by the fact that not a single tear falls from her face as she does that. Like, I, I, she's clearly she's in, in shock. shock. Yeah, and, and but she does. Yeah, I, I totally believe it. So, Tom, when Vaughn says she's wrong, you know, it's not your fault. He's excusing himself, not Brody. Yeah, yeah. You know, is it Brody's wrong? He's... But you know, that's how you take that moment. And and yeah, he's like he's trying to excuse himself, and he's trying to excuse Brody, and he's trying to make him feel better because he's just going to push on with his you know business agenda, just keeping everything open. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just greasing the sleds. He wants Brody to be his creature, and yeah. so he's ah, now she's wrong. You're with me. Yeah, right. What that was, and yeah. Brody can't stand the taste of that. You know the way it's not. You can't deflect what she says. Like, oh, she's just being mean, or she's out of her gourd, or anything like that. There's, you just can't. She delivers it in such an unimpeachable fashion that you have to take what she says very, very seriously. And I think a lot of people would have, you know, in that moment when it's just hitting so flush for someone like Vaughn to come up and go, you know what, she's wrong. A lot of people would take that out. You know, I think a lot of people would just search for any kind of refuge emotionally from that moment. And, and Brody just doesn't like, he's just, he, like you said, it doesn't sit well with him. He doesn't like the taste of it. And, and he, 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 he doesn't flinch before that. And that just, it's just a cool thing. I love to your point, how it was played, which is it's not in hysterics, which it could have been yeah. right. Like, I mean, that's a, it's either an acting or a directorial or collaborative choice for her to play that the way that she does and play it almost paralyzed by grief and shock versus raving and hysterical and i wonder if they talked about 
that if it's from the book i don't know i don't know like what the practice of that is but they made the right choice in having it just be so it's so heavy yeah and if she'd come in screaming oh my god oh my god like yeah. you could have been like oh she's just crazy but yeah no she's she's fully conscious of what she's doing and it's a choice on her part that i'm going to communicate this and yeah uh, so it lands so well even as a kid i could appreciate what that mom was going through and as a parent now good grief God, it's well, so much you know. worse that's another of those scenes bill that i just can't it, it's hit it hit me so much harder as a parent you know because oh. really you're gonna kill like a kid and it's not gonna be like an off-camera thing it's gonna be a fountain of blood kind of thing like oh my god so it hits me watch. like a ton of bricks every yeah. time in that beach scene when Alex dies, it's like everybody's getting out of the water. This is all different manifestations of a parent's worst nightmare. She's going through the, every other kid is accounted for. And she's the one in the crowd shouting her kid's name and hears nothing back. And it's just like, Oh God, just, just, it takes the, the, the air out of your lungs. It's such a horrifying notion. And all you get to see is Alex's raft with very large bite marks wash up in red surf. And it's just, it's just so hard to watch. I mean, and they, they don't, trivialize it and i'm so glad they don't because it really you know even though it's a it's a popcorn blockbuster kind of film they don't play it too heavy but boy it's heavy enough to like oh man something's got you guys got to do something about the shark because we've all been there right like whether it's like disneyland or the grocery store or whatever it is when your kid wanders off for a minute and you're like in the crowd looking around like i don't have eyes on i don't know where my kid and you have that that panic that shuts you down yeah. until you find or you know i'm i don't know I think most parents have had the experience of like, you go to the front desk and you're like, okay, like, let me check and see if my kid, cause you tell them like, you know, if you get separated, like go to the, yeah. you've checked the toy section, you've checked the bikes and you're like, okay, what's going on here? Yeah. And um, you feel that rising panic. And, um, and that's always your worst so, nightmare. You know? yeah, it, does, it doesn't yeah. take much to do that. It's the case yeah. that's running through your head. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, the, I shark, think... the shark got him in target. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that can I, now. I left him by sporting goods. I thought he'd be safe there. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One thing I don't want to miss, Bill, uh, about this scene is Roy Scheider's performance. Um, Ooh, yeah. During our pregame discussions online, you talked about how fantastic Richard Dreyfus is and oh my gosh, he is. And, you know, my entire moment of truth is based on how unbelievable Robert Shaw is, but Roy Scheider holds the whole thing together and it is a great, great, great performance. This guy is midway between his two Academy Award nominations. That, that scene with him and his little boy. Oh, it's so good. I mean, I yeah, that was very nearly my moment of truth as well. Oh, yeah. I, I, that, that scene where he's just, you know, and just so quiet. And it's like, you know, give us a kiss. Why? Yeah. Because I need it. And it's just, the thing I love about that scene so is that, pathos. yeah, and pathos. And at a time when like the notion of parenting was a much harder edged thing, you know, it was like, you know, we're in the last stage of the kids should be seen, not heard. It's okay to smack your kid around, all that sort of stuff. And here you see a guy with every excuse to take it out on his family, frankly. There is no excuse to take it on your family, okay? But in the narrative structure, here's a character who you could have been written to go, you know what, he could, you know, a lesser man could use any of those things as a rising action to justify doing bad stuff to his family. And again, it would never be justified. But Brody doesn't do that. Brody turns to his family for love instead, for support. And, yes. and they, it says a lot about his, his character and how his kids rally around him and his wife rallies around him. And they're just a great family. And then he goes out and he does the right thing. He, he puts himself on the line. And yeah. he, he, he does it terrified. 
He's yeah, scared, scared of the water. The whole, yeah, that, the whole way, he's terrified. And yeah. Roy Scheider sells it. It's, it's just beautiful. It's a great performance. I and think. he plays the whole thing straight. I mean, he plays yeah. the whole thing, and it's he plays the whole thing at pH between six point nine and seven point one. Yeah, right? <laughs> no, no, the, it is a remarkably dialed in performance. I totally right. agree with you. Yeah, to the yeah. point to the point where when he does leave that very narrow bandwidth where he plays it, it, it hits really hard. Yeah, because he plays everything in that very narrow band, and so like when he does jump it up, it doesn't take much for him to yeah. reveal the character's anxiety yeah. or, or get out of the boat. Get out of the boat. Get out of the boat. <laughs> exactly. Chris, I'd like to move to your moment of truth, which is honestly the one we've all been waiting for because this gets around the character of Quint, the shark fisherman. So can you bring us up to the moment of truth and then, and then let's get into it. We all know what this is. Let's do this. My moment of truth is Quint's USS Indianapolis monologue, but we can't really quite start there because what's going on with Quint is deeply based in Herman Melville and Captain Ahab and Moby Dick. Quint's first appearance is at that selectman's meeting uh, where they announced the bounty on the shark and uh, of $3,000. And his introduction is scratching his fingernails across a chalkboard and announcing that you know, $3,000 isn't enough. I don't need volunteers. I don't want help. I want $10,000 and I'll catch your shark and I'll kill your shark. This guy uh, is abrasive with everyone he meets. He's mean, mean to Hooper, especially Tom, and even to Brody. You know, we see him in his shack and office, and it is wallpapered with shark jaws. You know, the, the shark trophy. <laughs> this man cannot stand sharks, and hunting them is not only his business, it's his pleasure. After the, the scene in the hospital where Brody makes Vaughn sign the voucher to pay Quint to, to hunt the shark, we move out onto the ocean and we have, you know, an initial scene where Hooper has sort of earned his stripes by, you know, showing that he can tie knots and stuff. He's enough of a sailor to, to con the ship. While, while Quint is drinking beer in the fisherman's seat, he's, he's teaching Brody to tie knots. And there's this scene where Brody's tying the knot and... You know, we have this really slow scene where Quint realizes something's going on with that lure out there and he buckles himself in and, and, and there's, uh, I mean, a really tense scene where absolutely nothing happens <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the line snaps and, and there's conflict between the characters. Great scene. That, that's their first presumptive encounter with the shark that night though, they all get drunk and uh, yeah, they, they compare scars. Poor Brody's appendix scar is just not worth mentioning. Quint tells the story of his service and experience upon the USS Indianapolis, which was torpedoed by the Japanese after delivering the Hiroshima bomb to uh, Okinawa or, or wherever it set off from. It went down and uh, 700 men went in the water and... In about an hour, the first shark came, according to Quint. Uh, he tells the story of how you know, the men sort of paired off into groups, into like infantry tactics, you know, four squares and things to fend off the sharks. And sometimes the shark would go away when you punched it, and sometimes it wouldn't. And it is the most tension-building scene 
in cinematic history, as far as I can tell. It is horrifying. It's tense. It, you know, it's right on point. And the whole time, Quinn is looking right at Brody as he tells the story. Because Brody asked the question, what happened? And it's got to come down on Brody like a ton of bricks. Quint Quint says it was a week before they even declared us overdue. And and we were dying at the rate of six every hour, I think it was. And I mean, that's a lot of dead men. That is a lot of horror. And, you know, that is a lot of dead eyes pointed at you when that shark rolls over. It, it, It is the tensest thing I think I've ever seen. It's it's so well done. I cannot even believe that Robert Shaw is English based on this performance. <laughs> and I just I just love it. I love the whole scene. It's it's fantastic. The reason that I love it so much, I think, is that it's the motivation, of course, for it's it's not just the tension and all that, it's the motivation for Quint's hatred of sharks. Mm-hmm. And it's it's what makes him Captain Ahab. I mean, the the parallels between the, the film and the book are, I mean, kind of surprising. The, Quint's entrance is jarring like Ahab's. Uh, there are three, like, real encounters with the shark, including one where it's butting the boat uh, or the ship, yeah, the ship, as it were. Those guys, those poor guys who put out the uh, Christmas roast from the pier, they, they get a Nantucket sleigh ride on that pier, or one of them does. Yeah. Uh, you know, when, when, when Quint comes in and destroys the radio, that is the most Ahab thing ever. I mean, that's more Ahab than Ahab. <laughs> <laughs> Brody's like, you're certifiable, Quint. Quint's like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, walks out. waves him off. I love it. He waves him off. He's so impenetrable. I know. Yeah. I love so, that. <laughs> and, 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 and Quint's last act as that shark takes him is to stab his machete in into its face you know several times and from hell's heart i stab at thee that's mm. it's perfect it's it, it i love it love it love it one of the things i think is so cool about that scene and yeah i mean honestly, i don't know anybody who's seen that scene and hasn't been like who boy that was a scene right of, of all the monologues of the kinds of movies i like to watch this one stands atop the zenith i mean with well, no, atop. well atop i can only think of one other monologue that even comes close i'm not going to mention it because it's so it's so not even in that category it's just Don't so go, you can't no it, it, you really can't yeah you just can't years ago i said to myself this is the best monologue yeah. in modern cinematic history it's, it's i've just, never heard an argument that yeah. No, <laughs> nothing will take it down. No one even, um, nobody even has the nerve to argue. <laughs> yeah, who, who would, you know? If you do, you will summon the ghost of Robert Shaw. He will haunt you for three days and three nights and <laughs> your hair will turn white and it'll, it's, it'll end badly. But what I think is cool about that is earlier in the movie, when we get a, a kind of a, a monologue from Hooper and he explains what drives him, he talks about how he loves sharks. He's so fascinated by them. Like, and he actually had... He recounts an earlier encounter when he was a kid when a thresher shark destroys his boat and he's got to swim to shore with the thresher shark taking his boat up behind him, which I don't know about you guys. I would find that fairly terrifying. Scary. Yeah. <laughs> a little scary. And, and that's the kind of thing that might quintify me a little bit, but it doesn't for Hooper, right? He still loves sharks and he's super into them. And he's got this like gee whiz boy howdy fascination with what's going on, even though he knows what the stakes are. So Quint 
counterbalances that really nicely. And it sets us up for the final moments of the movie where, where you leave Brody in the middle. And Brody's the one who's got to yeah. take what he's learned from both of these and do what has to be done. But that speech from Quint is so immortal. It's oh. so, it's, I mean, it's spellbinding. I think it's a testament to our friendship here that we were able to resolve the question of like, who gets to talk about the monologue like so quickly? <laughs> like, if I were doing this podcast with any three other people, I would have had a fist fight for, to defend my right to talk about this monologue. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, I made it a condition of I will say this, that, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about, about Vaughn. To me, Quint is just as flawed a character as, as Larry Vaughn. It's, he's just oh, as absolutely. corrupted for his own reasons, right? And I love the insight into what informs his character, but you know, he's going to kill this shark for personal reasons. He doesn't care about any of the people on the beach. He doesn't yeah. care about any of the mm-hmm. people. That's, not, that's, that, that's got nothing to do with it. He's doing it because he hates sharks. Yeah. And so he's going to kill the biggest one he can find. Right? Yeah. What's funny, I love about that he he knows that the town's eventually going to come around to getting him, and he's watching all this folly going on, like other people trying to catch this shark, and just laughing at it. that scene where he's pulling his boat into the dock and he's just laughing at everybody. I mean, yeah. that is Quint, man. That is yeah. just Quint right there. With that Indianapolis speech, you get that set up like, okay what does it take to survive an ordeal like that? And what does it take to be the guy who is after that? And then you see it in action. And not in like a heroic macho way, but in this desperate kind of horror-driven way where he's like, what, is a Quint, what does it take to scare a guy like Quint? And then what does it look like when Quint gets scared? And you see that. And, and the Indianapolis speech sets it up so masterfully. They've got the shark hooked, right? And they're, they're bringing it back. It's clear that the shark is pulling against the boat. Like he's doing the impossible. He's so, he's so barreled up. The shark should not be resisting the way it is and even like quint is starting to wonder if maybe he's up against something he can't defeat and hooper is like he's like you gotta ease off on the throttle you're gonna bring the engine out and that's when quint he's like he just throttles in harder starts singing more like he and he's like i don't care he just willingly burns out his own engine because he will impose his will on this fish even if it kills him and everyone around him in that moment uh bill uh, he, he sings farewell and adieu to you fine Spanish ladies, which he has done at times throughout the movie, including his one of his early mockings of, of Hooper. And that is his way of invoking and warding off death, I think. Yeah. You know, he, 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 he is trying to exert his mastery over death. Chris, I had a little that. bit of a different reading on this and it only came recently. And like I said, I've seen this movie like hundreds of times and it's only like two or three watchings ago where I started to see, I think it's fear because he sings that song a lot differently than he does in prior. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's also warding off death. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 When he's singing, there is no bravado in his voice. He's like, he's like, he's like, hold together. Comforting himself with it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a very um, time-worn sea chanty, right? I mean, going back to England, the English sailors used to sing it. They used to use it as a way to teach navigation because there are verses to that song that talk about how far places are from each other and everything else. Oh, really? Yeah. I think for him, that's part of He puts on an act a little bit. Like Mm -hmm. He wants to be seen as this old salty dog. And so he's picked this. This is his sea chanty that he does. To, to burnish that image. 
And like you said, at the end, he's trying to convince himself. Yeah. Yeah. And so he just, yeah. he's like, I got to throw into this gear and be this guy yeah. because I don't know what else to do. Well, anyway, we li- delivered the bomb. <laughs> we delivered the bomb. Yeah, 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 exactly right. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. I timed that, by the way, from you know, from the beginning of it when Brody asks, you know, like what happened, all the way through, del- we delivered the bomb. That's over four minutes, and I'm riveted the entire time. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. What you're seeing there is a single take on Shaw, but they cut away to show Brody just to kind of give some visual breakup. But when you see it again. Take a look at Richard Dreyfus behind him, right? Hooper is just riveted. And that's not just, that's not Dreyfus playing Hooper. Apparently that's Dreyfus breaking character. Cause he's like, you know, that was a young Richard Dreyfus at that point yeah. up against a veteran actor like Shaw. Apparently the two kind of locked horns a little bit as part of like a method thing as well. That's Dreyfus like amazed at the elemental, you know, power that Shaw is putting off in that performance right there. And I mean, the dynamics of that monologue, it just goes up, it goes down, it goes in, it goes out. It just goes all over the place and never once like loses gimbal lock. It's just, it's just, it's, it's always it's, locked in. And that tone yeah. shift from like, you know, uh, Dreyfus, he's just told the, the, you know, she broke my heart joke <laughs> right into, you know, like yeah. just being in awe like that yeah. was just so well played. Like it, it's like all the oxygen gets sucked out of the room. Oh yeah. yeah. Like, wait, wait, you were on the Indianapolis. Indiana- <gasps> yeah. The way, the way Hooper drops that, you know, something serious yeah. about to come down, which is, which is great. Yeah. There's a funny backstage. I don't, I don't often like to get too much into the story behind the making the movie necessarily. I like to focus on just the art itself, but there's a funny scene. There was a scene that they cut that they were going to make for this movie and they didn't, which the introduction to Quint was going to be him much earlier in the movie, sitting in a movie theater, watching a showing of Gregory Peck's Moby Dick. And he's just laughing at it and being this total jerk. And like, everybody's <laughs> getting up and leaving the, the theater. So he's like, you know, he's like, ha, 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 just like, just laughing the whole thing. So finally he's the only one left. They ultimately got rid of it for a couple of reasons, not the least of which was Gregory Peck wasn't too cool with the idea of, <laughs> of his movie being his his character being laughed at as an introduction to somebody else. He was like, I'm not really into this. And so they're like, yeah, maybe we'll back off on it. But I do love the idea of, of Quint just like Quint's never gone to a movie in his life except to go ruin this one. <laughs> like, you know? That would also like, be totally I, Quint. Yeah. Right, that'd be totally Quint. Like I kind of wish there's a second movie in some alternate reality, which is the reality show of Quint being Quint and just watching him like he's just he's walking around, he's littering, he's spitting on where he shouldn't be spitting. Like he's just like being the biggest, like he's not just salty, he's salt. You know, he's just so he's oh, yeah. He's like so encrusted. Yeah. I, you know, the, the Long Islanders who listen to this will make me turn in my Long Island card if I don't mention that uh, <laughs> he's based on a character, Frank Mundus, you know, a guy, real guy who, you know, did charters out of Montauk going after big game fish like this. And he is still the world record holder uh, for Rod and Reel. And 3,427 pound great white shark is the record he caught in 1986. This was after the movie, but yeah. eventually based the character on him. Yeah. And he has a lot of these eccentricities and things like, all right, he never was on the Indianapolis, but he's, he's very much like Quint. If you've ever seen any of his quotes, you know, appear, you know, in documentaries and stuff mm-hmm. about the movie, he is that guy. I mean, he's yeah. abrasive, he's eccentric, he's, uh, you know, he, he's quick to brag about how you know the 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 character um quint you know used a lot of the methods that he developed for for hunting (laughs) big great white sharks yeah yeah so we've had our vaughn moment our brody moment our quint moment 
you know, Tom, I know your, your moment involves Hooper. I'd love to, to turn things over to you. My moment of truth, it's more of a Quint moment, but like it's when Quint suddenly decides that maybe there's some merit to some of the things that Hooper has been trying to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, tying a giant shark cage onto his, his boat, uh, having these explosive tanks of air just sitting there. Like this is, you know, a moment when you've seen Quint get scared, you know, as, as he said, he's, he's, you know, the, the shark has almost ripped out the transom of the boat. You know, he's tried to do this strategy that like clearly he's not done before where he wants to drag the shark into the shallows and drown him in the shallows. And the motor has just detonated and there's no, like you're dead in the water and you get this great little moment where Quint goes into the pilot house and, you know, after he spent the night telling everybody how he's never going to put a light jet life jacket on again, he glances at the life jackets for a second. Yes. And you get this sort of like, like a sense of like, you don't know quite how long he spent in that pilot house. Yeah. You know, looking around at all the different things. But like when he comes out of that pilot house, though, He's, oh, you know, Mr. Hooper, tell me about some of these things <laughs> that you got on board <laughs> yeah. my boat. Like, to me, that is the moment where, like, the old salt, the guy who really knows how to do this is out of tricks. Yes. Period. And now it's time, you know, you're dead in the water. The boat's not going anywhere. And now you've got to turn to everybody else and, and, and figure out, like, what are we going to do here? And yeah. he starts with Hooper, you know, who immediately you know starts going into how he's going to poison the shark there's some back and forth there but like that was the moment in the movie when i first saw it or like oh yeah they're really screwed now yeah 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 and it's just such a moment of truth uh you know you can even see it in brody's face a little bit that like he's just like this guy i hired and i'm paying 10 grand to who says he knows how to do this doesn't know how to do this <laughs> and it's, it's such a great moment yeah I, I love it to death and that that pause though like when he's looking at the life jackets though yeah the thing like we're really like we're gonna see this guy stripped down to his bare core yeah and when he comes out, he throws life jackets to Hooper mm-hmm. and to Brody, and like, and, and Brody keeps yes. it right on. Hooper, Brody's like, whatever. He just, he's like, not even questioning. He goes right on. He's like, absolutely, you know. The last idea he tried to execute was Brody's. Let's lead him in shore. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. That, that was what his final option was. Yeah, he yeah. was out. Of, he was out of ideas even before this. <laughs> I was blown away by. <laughs> Richard Dreyfuss's uh, performance in this was just um, really amazing from the beginning. He comes in, he is so kinetic, and yeah. and he masters some really hard dialogue. And um, he's a little bit much at first. Like he comes off like <laughs> he's he's Matt Foley, inspirational speaker, who's been doing you know a drinking coffee since five o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> or this isn't the is, first he is, time he's tried to impress you know he, actual the locals. Yeah, yeah. He's, well, he's loaded for bear when he comes in. And like, you know, he comes in and he's doing the autopsy and all of a sudden he's a, you know, fifth year medical resident uh, doing this autopsy and like, he's, you know, uber competent with all this stuff. And, but you get the impression that he's always trying to prove something. He's trying to yeah. prove to his father. Or he's, he's you know, he's proved it. And, you know, this is the, you know, the umpteenth time that, you know, he's had to tell somebody that they're wrong, that they don't want to admit that they're wrong. And then yeah. they end up being wrong. <laughs> I, think I think you're right, Tom, but I, I, I also get the impression that that he 
he's a rich kid who yeah gets, he gets people treat him a little bit like a dilettante or whatever mm-hmm. else but he's like no i i know my stuff and like yeah he's yeah. always trying to when prove he tells that he knows Quint, okay that he can't push the engines that hard like every bone in my body says to me, what kind of jerk like tells a sailor on his own boat that he can't push the motor that hard? And yet kid. he's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's right. The thing just blows up. You see the piston go through the bottom of the boat. Boom. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a dramatic engine explosion. I mean, Quint really hammered the engine for, for it to do that. It's like, cool. it's like, it's like a Looney Tunes just went off. Holy cow. Oh, well, I got us into 30 feet of water. Yar. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think the other thing to keep in mind with the whole like Hooper and who he's trying to, to impress, there's this hilarious stuff when he's first getting his stuff out to, at, you know, to the Orca and he's putting it all together. And, uh, you, know, you know, he's like, Quint's like, why do you ask some kind of half-assed astronaut? <laughs> it's like these casual backhands. And then like he's explaining it like what a shark cage is, like anti-shark cage. Like shark cage goes in the water, you go in the water. Sharks in the water, our shark, and he's like, "It's a clerk's moment." He's just like, "How dumb do you have to be to get in a cage in the water with a shark?" And like, he's just he's questioning the very notion of it. But you know, again, just to break the fourth wall in this movie a little bit, lest we forget, you know, at that time, the science on sharks wasn't actually all that sophisticated. We've actually learned a ton of stuff about sharks since Jaws. There's still a bit of, a, of an air of myth. And because of Jaws. So Hooper is this guy who's trying to, you know, explain, like, he's the guy trying to show that the map has no edge, right? Like, you know, he's, he's trying to, to demystify a sea monster, and you got this guy going, I know a sea monster when I see one. And so all he's doing is bringing all these reasons to be discounted, even though they're based on scientific principle and all that. Like, he's... and. And yeah, like he's probably had to explain to people all the time, Tom, like, you know, this is what's going to happen. Nobody was to believe him. And Quint is like the biggest one he's ever had to run up against. And it's taken the shark just like completely housing Quint <laughs> to finally go. So let's, let's, let's take a look at this. Take a look at the shark cage again. Five seconds after my moment of truth, who's helping to put the shark cage together? Dig yeah, all yeah. The yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. right. Hey, hey, I thought it was funny that, uh, like he was even more frustrated by Quint than he was by Vaughn, and he was super frustrated by Vaughn. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So uh, conceivably, there's a guy who should know better if he spent all yeah. his life around sharks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will tell you though, the, the Hooper Cage sequence is really effective because this entire movie you're put in the psychological space where going in the water is a like we malo idea like not to be recommended okay that's where the bad guy is and he's like to do this we got to go in the water it's like oh man like don't hit me with your science now dude (laughs) that's where bad things happen so he gets in the cage and of course this shark is like no shark we've ever seen before so it it starts just you know ramming the cage all right you know and hooper's like ah and first thing that happens is the poison jabber he goes in there that gets dropped you see go to the bottom you're like you're never gonna get in that ever again <laughs> that is lost <laughs> that is lost to you <laughs> that is like yeah. D. yeah that, that may have gone down the marianas trench for as far as he's concerned like no that it's out of reach and the shark it's just like hammering and it it bashes its way in and he's like you can hear him screaming through his mask as he's stuck in this cage knifing away at this shark and it's got this big freaking head in there trying to eat him and i just love how like even though hooper's right his principles are right even then again like his best laid plan it gets turned against him somehow he's in the middle of the ocean 
in the most claustrophobic environment possible. Like he's in the most close quarters combat with this shark that you can get. And poor <laughs> Hooper did it to himself, you know, and even though he was right, like it's just the whole, it just underscores just how sideways all this has gone. Like whatever anybody oh, yeah. brings to the table, none of it is going to work. And that I mean, he knows going in the water. I mean, like, you know, you got, I got, whole, no, like, spit, I got right? no spit. I got no spit. Like I got that's no now spit. shorthand for like, I'm about to do something very, very stupid. Yeah. Like, yeah. Hanging out with my <laughs> I'm going to die. <laughs> but he is the bravest character. I, I, I think. Oh, personally. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, he best understands the danger and acts in the face of it and actually advances towards it, knowing what could happen. Uh, yeah, I would, I would say so. I mean, because Brody does what he has to do. But, yes. I mean, I don't know. There's different kinds of courage. I mean, Brody's pretty yeah. courageous, too, just for getting on the boat. I mean, he's terrified just being on the boat a, 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 the entire time, let alone having to face off with this. this and he's also shark. intimidated by the dudes with him, you know, by, yeah. by yeah. Hooper's knowledge and by Quint's experience. Yeah, yeah. So. There's also earlier in the movie when the, uh, Hooper and uh, Brody are out in the boat doing their initial recon, and he goes in the water. That's not the first yeah. time he goes. Right. He goes without a cage. He goes yes. in the water. Not even, not even, a, not even, a, not even, not even a scuba tank. He just, he just swims under Ben Gardner's boat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and that's like, and you see before he goes in the water, he's going. He starts doing some heavy yeah. breathing, and like he's like, I'm going on the water, and this is not a good yeah. place to be. Yeah, yeah, that was a hard scene. I remember when I first saw that. I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> like, like and you get the no. sh the shark tooth is like you know the size of a dinner plate. Yeah, it's, it's and, massive. You know. Like, great. So, yeah. I thought they were underselling it when they said shot glass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, shot glass. Hey. Like, if by shot glass you mean eight ounce tumbler, well then yes. <laughs> Maybe that's an Amity shot glass. I don't know. We talked about how I, I had not seen this movie before and was able to come to it fresh, um, which I think sometimes th there was no nostalgia for me to lean on mm. to paper over things that might have been negatives. And there was nothing for me to say, this is awesome because I remember it being awesome. It was just an entirely organic experience for me. And there's some stuff like as soon as they mentioned the explosive air tank, I knew how things were going to turn out with that. Like you, you <laughs> yeah. kind of see that one coming. From they the they linger on it for a moment. There's, yeah, 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 yeah some, they do. Uh, yeah. There's, there's yeah. definitely some Chekhov's air tank going on there. And <laughs> yeah. I was astonished at astonished is too strong a word. I was really gratified at how effective the effects were, at how good yeah. the shark was. And yeah. it goes back to we talked about this with aliens that the the practical effects are so much scarier than yeah. cgi oh for sure and this this shark which is apparently you know it's a mechanical shark they're working with levers and stuff yeah inside. that almost but, never worked by the way <laughs> yeah it was it was awesome yeah i mean it's, it's as old as i am and it's fantastic which yeah you know, gives me gives yeah. me hope no at the end when you see it jump on the back of the orca you're like that's a horrifying it's just back there like it's, it's like, eating it's, the boat it's, it's, <laughs> eating the, it's so freaking it's so freaking scary there are a couple of moments where I thought it was a real shark. Like when, when it's in the water, the way it moves looks. Yeah, it, so yeah, it was so well done. I, I just have to say, I, this isn't anybody's moment of truth, but since, since we're getting near the end of the show, I, I do have to say, though, if we can just take a moment to discuss Quinn's death scene, which is mm -hmm. straight up for me one of the most horrifying scenes in any movie ever. I've seen movies that are way more brutal. I've seen movies that are way more, way more gory, way more cruel, whatever. But this scene lands so hard because there's no music, right? It, it, it happens, and all of a sudden, you see, you see the boat 
turning. And right off the bat, Quint starts like this panic rises in his voice. He knows what's about to happen, right? Right? He can see this coming. Like, ah, and there's nothing gonna happen. They try to grab his hand. He slips out, and he's he's sliding inexorably towards this gaping, chomping maw. And he's sitting there, and he's kicking frantically, just like they did with in the Indianapolis. And it's doing nothing. He's like, oh, and then and and he's like, ah, 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 and then you can hear the teeth sink in, and just that comes up and just this like 15 I, I don't know how 15 seconds maybe less i don't know how long it goes on for where he's just like he's stabbing away and he's screaming in anguish and like he just you know and then finally the blood comes out of his mouth and the shark just you know just it just pulls him into the water and that's it for quint for it hate's is, sake i spit my last breath <laughs> oh my god it is such it is i remember when i first saw that i was riveted and and you know i'll tell you a kind of a funny story about all that is so I'm going to guess. This oh, oh a funny story. Yeah, no, 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 it's actually, it's actually hilarious, but it trades on how well that scene, that scene, even 40 some years later, it still hits me. And I don't think it's through nostalgia. I, I, I really think that's just a very, for me, it's a very effective scene. It really, cause I, you see how panic Quint is. He does not, you know, he's so terrified and you feel that's his the terrifying part of it. Yeah. Is the, you know, on your own boat. <laughs> Right. right, having to slide toward this, yeah. and you're kicking every part of the way. The anticipation of the chomp is the thing. It's it's, it's awful, right? It's awful. So, like ten years ago, my daughter, my daughter's having a sleepover, and they're all watching a movie. And decide, and and Fiona has always been super cool. She's like watching the movies I watch and all that. So she decides to watch Jaws with all of her friends. Right now, she's like twelve years old, maybe something like that, and Connor is like ten. Fiona was watching it. I think she, I think I had shown it to her once before, so she knew what was going on, but none of her friends had seen it before. And Connor certainly hadn't seen it before. And so he, he really wants to watch it. And Allie and I were talking, going, okay, you know, you know, should be, you know, is it okay for him to watch? We're like, you know, we, we're like, like, like he, he, can, he can handle it, right? And so <laughs> my wife is sitting across the room and has a camera trained on Connor. And as that scene starts, she starts click, 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 click. And we have this frame by frame progression of Connor's facial expressions as Quint, you know, in his final moments. And it, and it starts with, it starts with Connor's eyes. He's like, huh? And his eyes are like wide, like dinner's plates. And then his mouth like, Ugh! and he's like, and it's like these, every facial expression is like, I know exactly what happened just by looking at the facial expression. It's this, this, this like extraordinary. And I just laugh when I see it. Cause it's such a great, primal reaction to this to this death scene like you know he's a kid he's like oh god he checked out badly i'm like yeah he did he oh, really no. did yeah you guys who are listening to this you can't see this but behind bill is like a row of pictures on his wall i want to see one of connor where it's like one after the other like the change in the reactions put I, it right behind you <laughs> i have the sequence i will send it along it is precious some of my favorite photographs ever taken. They are so, and in fact, Allie's got just one of them of just his eyes wide open in her office. It's like one of her favorite shots. It's such a, it's such a pure human reaction. But like, that's why I love this movie so much though. I mean, he was coming at this. I mean, you talk, Joe, you're talking about no film of nostalgia, no nothing. Right. He just came at this. It's, a, it's an old movie, you know, but it worked just as well for him as it did for me when I was younger. I'm like, it's, it's, that's what this movie can do. It, it's magic is so potent and the effects are so good and the emotional landscape is so well drawn that these things, they still keep working as well as they ever did. And very few movies can, can, can lay claim to that. And, and you know, if we get to what the heart of why that, why that scene, why Quint's death is so effective, it's not that Quint dies. It's that he's eaten. 
Right. Okay. There is something. This isn't King Kong ripping you apart. This yeah. isn't, you know, you got blown up. This is a bigger, badder animal ate you. <laughs> like that's something just so viscerally terrifying. We're, con- yeah. we're we're so accustomed to the idea of being at the top of the food chain yeah. that you're you're a snack, buddy. Yeah. And that is terrible. See, now this is why I don't want to show this to my kids yet, because we went to the beach three times this week. And we said, <laughs> each yeah. time, and you could kiss those moments goodbye if they ever <laughs> jaws. To be fair, so I live in coastal New Jersey. In fact, I live not far from where some of the shark attacks happened in 1916 during that whole bloody, that shark summer that, that partially inspired Jaws, that some of those things were like local to where I live. We vacation in Cape Cod which is an area, as all my friends will tell you, I'm very quick to remind you, that area is actively patrolled by great whites. In fact, there are attacks happening ongoing because the, they're, so, they're so prevalent up there. It's a dangerous place to swim. My kids, we don't swim here and we don't swim up there. We just go, we go like in the salt ponds, that sort of thing. So we don't swim in shark country. So I knew if we played this movie, it was not going to impede their enjoyment of, of the surf, you know? And it's getting so with global warming now, they're coming up in the coast of Maine, coast of New Hampshire, like coastal yeah. waters are warming sufficiently that, you know, <laughs> I start worrying about the lake house. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Nice house. Sharks I think I'll take it. Fresh water. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. We haven't even talked about land sharks yet. Oh, man. <laughs> <Bone> <laughs> <Sorry>. sharks. <laughs> Before we go, a final thought. Jaws was such bad PR for sharks as a category of animals that Peter Benchley himself, a conservationist and a self-styled ocean advocate, spent the latter half of his life on a goodwill tour, largely to promote just how much we had actually learned about sharks in general and great whites in particular. Not much was understood about shark behavior in the early 1970s uh, when Jaws was written and filmed. They were thought to eat people as a matter of choice. They were thought to attack boats out of sheer pugnaciousness. None of that is true, of course, but as what we have come to know about sharks has increasingly diverged from what we have traditionally believed about sharks, it's become clear that perhaps the biggest victim in Jaws was the Great White itself. In 2000, uh, Benchley published a great article in National Geographic about the Great White Shark that's equal parts deep sea geekery and an act of penance for having contributed to a legacy that hasn't just demonized a particular kind of animal, but led to some real harm against it. Since the release of Jaws, the worldwide population of certain species of sharks has dropped by more than 80%. Now, not all that ties back to the legacy of this movie, but it would be impossible to say that this is a case where life isn't imitating art, at least to some degree. Thankfully, we've come a long way since those days of panic over dorsal fins breaking the water, and we've learned that sharks have more to fear from humans than the other way around, really. But every time a shark attack makes the news, and they always will, We might do well to remember that the ocean is a big place. We must respect it as well as those living within it. After all, there's an old Nantucket saying about living close to shore. If you can see the ocean, the ocean can see you. And that's true of its denizens as well. Although we often can't see that which is already watching us. The best part about Jaws 2 is its tagline. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. But like everything else in that movie, even that's a miss. It's not safe to go back in the water. It was never safe to go into the water. Maybe that's why we love doing it so much. On behalf of myself, Tom, Chris, and Joe, thanks for listening to this episode of Moments of Truth. We'll see you next time. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. 
the Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.